Father, we think of the, the many churches this morning gathered with your children. We're going to hear the word. Father, we pray that the message of your gospel would come through loud and clear from those pulpits. Father, we pray that as they read scripture, as they listen to the word preached, as they sing, Father, we ask that you would be glorified. Father, we ask that you would be glorified in this service this morning as well. Father, I pray for calmness. Pray that you would still my troubled soul. Father, I pray that uh, you would give me a boldness to preach your word. Father, help me to be clear. And Father, please keep me from error. Father, I pray that your word this morning would find good soil in our hearts. Father, we want to see your word spring to life and bear much fruit. And so, Father, we ask that you would do that miracle in our hearts this morning. Father, as we learn to pray, Father, may we do it all for your glory and for the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. This flyer was posted in New York City in September of 1857. And it's a little difficult to read, so I'll read it. How often should we pray? As often as the language of prayer is in my heart, as often as I see my need of help, as often as I feel the power of temptation, as often as I'm made sensible of any spiritual declension, it's an old word for a decay of my spiritual health, or feel the aggression of a worldly, earthly spirit. In prayer, we leave the business of time for that of eternity, and intercourse with man for intercourse with God. This is a flyer for a prayer meeting, a day prayer meeting held every Wednesday from 12 to 1 o'clock in the consistory building in the rear of the North Dutch Church, corner of Fulton and William Streets. And I love the old 19th century English here. This meeting is intended to give merchants, clerks, strangers, and businessmen generally an opportunity to stop and call upon God amid the perplexities incident to their respective avocations. It will continue for one hour, but it's also designed for those who may find it inconvenient to remain for more than five or ten minutes, as well as for those who can spare the whole hour. The necessary interruption will be slight because anticipated. And those who are in haste can often expedite their business engagements by halting to lift up their hearts and voices to the throne of grace in humble, grateful prayer. All are cordially invited to attend. Did you wonder how that would go over today in Vancouver? We open the doors to the church and we invite people cordially just to come and pray, five or ten minutes or for the full hour. Well, that uh, little flyer was printed and distributed by a Christian businessman by the name of Jeremiah Lanfier. 
Mr. Lanfear had been hired a few months earlier by the North Dutch Church to lead their work of evangelism in the city. Listen to the story as it's told in the book on this day. The mood of America was grim in the mid-1850s. The country was teetering on the brink of civil war, torn by angry voices and impassioned opinions. Sounds a little bit like today. A depression had halted railroad construction and factory output. Banks were failing, unemployment soared, and spiritual lethargy permeated the land. In New York City, Jeremiah Lanfear, a layman, accepted the call of the North Reformed Dutch Church to a full-time program of evangelism. He visited door-to-door, he placed posters, and he prayed, but the work languished, and Lanfear grew discouraged. As autumn fell over the city, Lanfear decided to try a noontime prayer meeting, thinking that businessmen might attend during their lunch hours. He announced the first prayer meeting for September 23rd, 1857. That's 164 years ago this past Thursday. When the hour came, Lanfier found himself alone. He sat and waited. Finally, one man showed up, and then a few others. But the next week, 20 came. The third week, 40. Someone suggested that the meetings should occur daily. And within months, the building was overflowing. And the revival spread to other cities, office spaces, and stores closed for prayer at noon. Newspapers, including the New York Times, spread the story. Even telegraph companies set aside certain hours during which businessmen could wire one another with news of this great revival. In all these cities, prayer services began at noon, and they ended at one. People could come and go as they please. The service opened with a hymn and was followed by the sharing of testimonies and prayer requests. A time limit of five minutes per speaker was enforced by a small bell when anyone tried to exceed the limit. Virtually no great preachers or famous Christians were used. It was primarily a lay movement. The revival is now known as the Third Great Awakening. It lasted for nearly two years, and somewhere between 500,000 and 1 million people were said to have been converted. It spread overseas as well, where hundreds of thousands of souls in other countries came to Christ, all from a noontime prayer meeting. Well, for all that's changed in America since the 1850s, The times in which we live are not so different. And if you spent five minutes on your news app this morning, you'll know that to be true. We have not evolved. Clearly, we need to learn to pray because clearly we need revival. So what a joy then to come to this morning's passage and hear the words of our Lord calling us to pray and telling us how it is to be done. Jesus gives his disciples in this passage a pattern or a model for prayer, and it is clear, it is concise, and it is complete. The ever-eloquent Puritan Thomas Watson described the Lord's Prayer in these words, 
Never was their prayer so admirably composed as this. As Solomon's song for its excellency is called the Song of Songs, so may well this be called the Prayer of Prayers. The matter of it is admirable. One for its succinctness. Tis short and pithy, a great deal said in a few words. This short prayer is a system or body of divinity. That means it's a, it's a theology book in a prayer. Two, for its clearness. This prayer is plain and intelligible to every capacity. And three, for its completeness. This prayer contains in it the chief things, all the chief things that we have to ask or God hath to bestow. So in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus instructs us on two things. One, how to address God, and two, how to appeal to Him. He teaches us how to address God in only four words, and He teaches us how to appeal to God in six short petitions. The first three of those petitions, that's half of the prayer, are requests for God to act on behalf of His own glory. That's instructive. The final three petitions are requests for God to act on behalf of us in our needs, to grant our needs, daily prayer, forgiveness of sins, and deliverance from evil. But before we jump into the four-word address of this prayer, let me ask a foundational question. What is prayer? What are we talking about when we say, let's pray? What was Jesus talking about when he said, pray then like this? Well, since the time of the English Puritans, children and new believers have been taught the answer to that question using a catechism. A catechism is a neglected tool these days. What is, pr- what is prayer is the 98th question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the answer is worth memorizing. What is prayer? Prayer is an offering up of our desires. And I would add, offering up of our desires from a sense of our helplessness unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confessions of sin and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Now, that's a mouthful. But the men who crafted that answer did so with care from passages such as these. From Psalm 62, they saw that prayer was an offering up of our desires unto God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. From 1 John 5, they knew that prayer was for things that were agreeable to His will. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And from John 16, they knew that prayer was to be offered in the name of Christ. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. And from Psalm 32, they knew that prayer was to be made with confession of sin. This is a beautiful verse. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. And lastly, from Philippians chapter 4, they understood that prayer also included thankful acknowledgement of God's mercies. Do not be anxious about anything, Paul wrote, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things that are agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with the confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. That is a profoundly biblical description of prayer. But let me add to it some additional quotes to help round out the definition. These are from an old Lutheran named Halsby. He wrote a little book entitled Prayer. That book has blessed me and it has blessed generations of godly men and women. Prayer, he wrote, is the breath of the soul, the organ by which we receive Christ into parched and withered hearts. To pray is nothing more involved than to lie in the sunshine of His grace, to expose our distress of body and soul to those healing rays which can in a wonderful way counteract and render ineffective the bacteria of sin. To be a man or woman of prayer is to take this sudden cure, to give Jesus with His wonder-working power access to our distress night and day. As far as I can see, wrote Halsby, prayer has been ordained only for the helpless. Let that truth sink into your head. Prayer has been ordained only for the helpless. And lastly, related to that helplessness, prayer consists simply in telling God day by day in what ways we feel that we are helpless. We are moved to pray every time the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of prayer, emphasizes anew to us our helplessness. And we realize how impotent we are by nature to believe or to love, to hope, to serve, to sacrifice, to suffer, to read the Bible, to pray, and to struggle against our sinful desires. Prayer has been ordained for the helpless. Well, last week, Josh taught us how not to pray. And for the context of this morning's passage, let me try to summarize his sermon in a single sentence. See how I do, Josh. We mustn't pray like the hypocrites or the pagans. You see, when hypocrites pray, they love to stand and do it where others can see them. In contrast, though, when we pray, we do it where only our Father sees. Our prayers are for His eyes only and for His reward only. And when the pagans pray, they babble. They use prayer formulas and they pile up words that mean nothing. They think it'll make God listen to them. 
In contrast, we pray knowing that God listens. And not only listens, but that He already knows what we need. Like a father knows the needs of his son even better than he does. So in a word, we mustn't pray like the hypocrites or the pagans. So how then should we pray? Well, Jesus in this passage shows his disciples and us how. Verse 9, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We'll tackle this verse in, in two parts. We have the address and then the appeal. This morning we'll focus solely on the address, our Father in heaven. So hopefully we can cover four words in 40 minutes. And next week we'll walk through the first appeal, hallowed be your name, which is the first of six such appeals or requests in this prayer. Jesus teaches us that when we pray, we are to address or to invoke the name of the Father. And in doing this, Jesus was asking us to follow His example. You see that in all but one of Jesus' prayers, He addressed God as Father. But by teaching His disciples to do the same, He was making a massive break from Jewish tradition. His own practice and His teaching on prayer was radical. Jews did not address God as Father. In fact, it's so rare that one study of Jewish literature up to the 10th century failed to find a single example of a prayer being offered by a Jew to God as Father. And that's odd because the Old Testament speaks clearly of Israel as sons, and it speaks clearly of God as their Father. But apparently, the Jews didn't address Him that way in prayer. Two examples, Israel as a son in the Old Testament. You know this account. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. We also see it in Hosea chapter 11 and many other passages. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. To see God as father of Israel, look at Isaiah 64. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. That verse raises a really important point because in a sense, God is the Father of all of creation. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us, Malachi 2? But that's not what Father means in this passage. We do not merely address God as the creator of all things. Thomas Watson said there would be very little comfort in that. For so God is the father of the devils by creation, but he that made them will not save them, he said. I make that point to separate 
what I'm teaching and what we believe here from those who hold to the doctrine of the universal fatherhood of God. And I'll come back to that at the end of this message. So then how should we conceive of God when we address Him as Father in our prayers? Let me try to answer that question from the passage in Exodus where God displays His glory, reveals Himself to Moses, Exodus chapter 34. Moses rose early in the morning. Again, you know this account. This happens on Mount Sinai. He goes up to the mountain. He took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descends in the cloud and stood with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed his glory. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth, and he worshiped. So our question was this, what does it mean that God is Father? As we bring our requests to Him, how are we to think of Him? And the answer staggers the mind, especially when we contrast this Father with earthly fathers. Think for a moment of your earthly Father. He may have been kind. He may have been cruel. He may have always been there for you, or he may have abandoned you. That's my story. My father left, as far as I know, before I was born. I never knew him. So the images of fatherhood that I have in my mind were etched there by multiple stepfathers. Whatever your experience, good or bad, Move from the analogy of your earthly father to the father in heaven. What do we know of this father? We'll limit ourselves to verse 6. We see first that this father is merciful. The father we address in prayer is full of mercy. His love is such that it overflows to miserable sons and daughters. That's what mercy is. I've used that definition in other sermons. The love of the Father overflowing to the miserable. That is mercy. In the misery of chronic pain or grief over a son that left the faith, where will you turn? Another day, another week, no change, no relief from the pain. Where else would you turn but to a merciful Father who knows what is best for his miserable children and who has the will and the power to grant what is good to his children. That is the God to whom we pray. That is the Father to whom we pray. This Father is not only merciful, but he is gracious. His love is such that it overflows to undeserving sons and daughters. That's grace. The love of the Father overflowing to the undeserving. About a day goes by, 
without us doing something offensive to the holiness of this Father. A passive-aggressive meme for all the people that you disagree with on Facebook. A lustful look at the ad that popped up in your browser. A drink too many. A word of gossip couched as deep concern for the person involved. We are not only undeserving of our Father's grace, we are ill-deserving, and yet He is described as full of grace. That is the Father to whom we pray. He's not only full of mercy and grace, but this Father is slow to anger. This Father is patient with us. Oh, what a contrast with many of our earthly fathers. His slowness to anger is the exact opposite of burning with anger, which is what we deserve. God, in a sense, lets His anger cool before He responds to our sin. If He did not, sinners could not survive the next five minutes. But note, this Father is slow to anger, not without righteous anger. Imagine a father with perfect patience for his child, slow to anger. That is the Father to whom we pray. Well, not only is the Father merciful and gracious and slow to anger, but He abounds in steadfast love. The Father's love is not a reluctant love, nor is He stingy with His love. His love abounds. It overflows to His children. For those of us raised in homes without a good father, there is comfort and healing in those words. He is a loving father. He always does what is good for his children. When you're hurt by the words of someone you thought was a friend, when your husband files for divorce, When you're stressed because you can't make the mortgage payment this month, where else would you turn but to a loving God who cares for you and has the resources of the world at his disposal? That is the Father to whom we pray. This Father also abounds in faithfulness. If you were abandoned as a child, here is offered to you a Father who will never leave you He will never forsake you. He will never fail you. He is always true to his word. What he promises, he does. That is the Father to whom we pray. And we haven't even scratched the surface of what this Father is. The God whom we call Father revealed to Moses, not only that he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and overflowing with love and faithfulness, but that he forgives sin. And somehow he remains just, and we'll return to that shortly. But let's go further. This father is infinite in all of his perfections. He is infinite in his wisdom. The confession says that he is most wise, perfect in knowledge. Do you know the balancing of the clouds? This is what Elihu asked Job. The wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge. He got that right. This Father knows everything. For when, you're, when our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything, 1 John 3. 
At best, our earthly fathers could offer us advice based on their limited human knowledge and experience. At best, they could protect us from what they thought might harm us, and they could only make a reasonable guess as to what we needed most. So imagine that a father who knows all things, who knows all that ever, all things that ever were, all things that are, and all things that ever will be, and all things that ever could be, that is the all-knowing Father of wisdom to whom we bring our requests in prayer. That is the Father to whom we pray. This Father is also immutable, which is just a fancy word, which means He never changes. So what if He's merciful and gracious? If all of a sudden He might change His mind about me? So what if He pours out His love on me today? If He might on a whim change His mind and pour out His wrath on me instead? No, the Father to whom we pray is unchangeably merciful, unchangeably gracious, and unchangeably loving. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Malachi 3. That is the Father to whom we pray. And not only is the Father infinitely wise and unchanging, but He is everywhere present. He is not limited by space or by time. In Wayne Grudem's definition, God is present at every point of space with His entire being. The best of earthly fathers want to be there for their daughter when she's bullied by kids at school. The best of earthly fathers want to be there for their son when he's tempted by pornography, but they can't always be there. They're limited creatures. They can be in but one place at a time. But the Father to whom we raise our requests has no limit. Where shall I go from your spirit? wrote the psalmist, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. That is the Father to whom we pray. One more. We could do this all day. The Father is all-powerful. He revealed this to Abraham when he was 99 years old. This is how he revealed himself to him. You know the story. He and Sarah were unable to bear children, yet his offspring were supposed to be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, this is how he reveals himself, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Earthly fathers can't do that. They cannot make an infertile couple have a son. But the Almighty, the Father we address in our prayers, 
was the one who spoke this universe into existence. He is the creator who put the very breath of life into his creatures. That's the father to whom I want to raise my prayers, for he alone has the power to answer my petitions, to help me in my helplessness. Nothing gets in his way. Nothing can stop him. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So back to our question. What does it mean that God is Father? How should we think of him as we offer our prayers to him? Well, the answer is that God as Father is meant to draw our minds and our hearts to His character, to the character of the God before whom we bow, to His infinite and never-changing mercy and grace and love and faithfulness. That's what we see in the one we address as Father. Now, Jesus not only taught his disciples to address God as Father, but he added these two words, in heaven. He is the Father in heaven. That does not mean that the Father is bound in some way to a place. Rather, it means that he is high, and that he is exalted in unspeakable glory. As humans, we simply lack language for expressing anything higher or more exalted or more majestic than the heavens. John Calvin sees three reasons Jesus added the words in heaven. Listen to his third reason. In heaven signifies that the Father embraces and holds together the entire universe and controls it by his might. Therefore, it is as if He had been said to be of infinite greatness and loftiness, of incomprehensible essence, of boundless might and everlasting immortality. But while we hear this, our thought must be raised higher because God is spoken of, lest we dream up anything earthly or physical about Him, lest we measure Him by our small measure, or conform His will to our emotions. At the same time, though, our confidence in Him must be aroused since we understand that heaven and earth are ruled by His providence and by His power. That is the Father in heaven to whom we pray. He is high and exalted. He reigns over the earth. He is the King of all kings, and He is the Lord of all lords. He is the Father in heaven. Well, up to this point, we've covered three of the four words that I was trying to cover this morning. Each one is packed with meaning. This last word, which in the case of our passage is actually the first word of the address, is just as significant. The disciples of Jesus were not merely taught to address their prayers to the Father in heaven, like the Jews may have done. They were to pray to our Father in heaven. 
Everything hinges on that little three-letter word, our. Even in the original language, it's only three letters. It's a personal pronoun, and it points to this relationship between the one praying and the one to whom he prays. It is the relationship of a son or a daughter to their father. Let me put it another way. This prayer is not a model prayer for just anyone who wishes to address the Father in heaven. It is for the son to address his Father in heaven. It is for the daughter to address her Father in heaven. Which means, if the Father I've tried to describe to you this morning is not your Father, this prayer is not for you. What good could you expect in pouring out your heart and laying out your request to someone else's Father? You have no standing. Yes, He's a Father full of mercy and grace, but what if you're not His child? Will his love overflow to you in your miserable and undeserving condition? Yes, he's a father slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's faithful. He's infinitely wise. He never changes. He's everywhere present, and he is all-powerful. But what if you're not in a father-son or a father-daughter relationship with him? What if your relationship with him is like that of the Jews Jesus confronted in John chapter 8. Of course, they claimed that God was their father as well. But Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Pay attention to those words. Not everyone who claims God as their father or is created by God is his son or daughter. The apostle John says something similar in 1 John 3. By this, it is evident that we are children of God and those, who, and those who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I am pushing back here against something I mentioned at the beginning of the message. It is a liberal notion of the universality or the universal fatherhood of God. Except by creation, we are not all His children. Passages like this are not referring to creation. There are children of God and there are children of the devil. That is not a popular teaching, but it is what the Scriptures tell us. I'll press it further. As I see it, there are really only two ways to become a son or a daughter, by birth or by adoption. And the same applies in the spiritual realm. When we fall on our knees and lift up our voices and say, Our Father in heaven, 
There are only two ways that little three-letter word could be true. We are either born into sonship or we we are adopted into it. The Scriptures use both analogies. But first, let me zoom out a bit. The whole point of this series is for us to learn how to pray. As we consider the weight, the gravity of stepping into the presence of this being, let us remember that though He is indeed merciful, gracious, and loving, He's also revealed Himself to us as righteous and just. Yes, the glory He showed Moses proclaimed that He forgives sin and transgression and iniquity. But he also declared that he will by no means clear the guilty. He is a God of justice. That too is a perfection of his. Let's consider this as we step into the presence of God, lest we be consumed. Fundamentally, here's the problem. We have all sinned, and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. There are no exceptions among us. Apart from Christ, we are all hell-deserving sinners. And please, Living Water Church, if you know, you know the gospel is coming, don't glaze over. These words, these words are precious. We have all sinned. But here's the glorious message of the cross that we try to preach here every week from the pulpit In one way or another, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5. The cross is the elegant solution to the problem of sin. You see, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And to see how that works, we just need to finish reading Romans chapter 3. We read, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but it goes on, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That is the appeasement of the wrath of God by His blood to be received by faith. Well, this was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can we enter the presence of the Almighty and pray without being consumed by his wrath? We must reach out and embrace or receive the gift of of grace by faith in the blood of Christ. He suffered the wrath of the Father that you and I as sinners rightfully deserved. When we embrace Him or receive Him by faith, He takes away our heart of stone and He gives us a heart of flesh. He makes us into new creatures and He declares us righteous in His sight. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal 
by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And here's where we begin to see the connection with adoption. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs. That's the main point of adoption, to become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, Titus 3. The Apostle Paul takes us deeper into the doctrine of adoption in Romans 8. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him, Romans 8. And listen to the Apostle John describe this using the word receive to describe this embracing or this putting our trust or faith in the blood of Christ. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So how do we become children of God? By receiving Him, by believing in His name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And there is our new birth, adoption and new birth. The reason I belabor this point is that everything that flows in this series on the Lord's Prayer flows from these first four words, our Father in heaven. Not only do all His perfections as a good Father bear on each of the six petitions that follow, but the relationship between the one praying and the one to whom He prays is foundational for understanding this prayer and for putting this prayer into practice. You cannot sincerely petition the Father for His will to be done if you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your Father's desires. In short, the hour, the hour relationship in the Lord's Prayer is made possible by the cross and only by the cross. Only those who have embraced Christ as their Lord and Savior, those who have been born again or have received Him or believed in His name can pray these words, Our Father in heaven. As we dig deeper into this passage over the next several weeks, I pray that it is a call for us to engage in serious prayer. Where else can you turn but to a father like this? Well, in the words of that flyer that announced the noontime prayer meetings that fostered the revival of 1858 and 1859, the children of God should pray often to their Father. As often as the language of prayer is in your heart, as often as you see your need of help, as often as you feel the power of temptation, as often as you are made sensible of any spiritual declension or feel the aggression of a worldly, earthly spirit, in prayer, 
we leave the business of time for that of eternity and intercourse with man for intercourse with God. All are cordially invited to attend. Let's pray.